Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Longevity Muscle Podcast. I'm Kenny, your host, and today I am welcomed by a very special guest, someone who I've been watching this podcast back in 2016. Most of you probably already know who he is, Steve Hall from Revive Stronger. Steve, how you doing, man? As we were saying off air, I'm a bit warm. I probably get a bit too warm on on podcasts, man. I'm bad, like interviewing guests. I'm nervous sometimes. I'm I'm less bad now, but I'd be like in summer mass, like peak bulk. I'd be like sweating. I'm like, oh, I hope they can't see my sweat on camera. So no, I'm good. Uh, like we were saying, is I'm just coming through, like basically, and I'm going through an active recovery week, and then I'll take like a kind of deload week. So I'm coming to the end of a long kind of gaining period, but not due to do a mini cut or anything anytime soon. So yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, it's an absolute honor. And I would love to, well, you kind of touched on it, maybe dive into a training update. I'm sure the the people who follow your work would enjoy that. So yeah, how's training been? Um, And then we can, you know, go from there. Yeah, I think it's been coming to 30 weeks since I finished competing uh, in Vegas at the WMBF uh, World Finals. So it's a long time. I can't believe actually it's, it feels like last month. It doesn't feel like that long ago, but it, it's been a fair amount of time. And I'm sitting now, I'm sitting around 190 pounds. So that's like 20 pounds up on stage. So pretty reasonable 20 pounds up over like 30 weeks. Obviously, initially I saw a bit of a bump because I purposely kind of put on the, that kind of fat tissue just for the, for the sake of feeling better. Um, and knowing that the recovery diet is probably the best approach, at least for me in that scenario, I think. And yeah, training has been going great. As we're also talking off air, I'm now located since January, we moved to Tooting Broadway and there's Yorkie's Gym, which is like a bit of a, I would call it a little bit of an, they call, they say it's old school meets new school. And I think what they mean by that is like, it's got those old school vibes in terms of like pure bodybuilding, but they kind of have some prime kit. There's some nice kind of training equipment and things. And the owner there used to compete and she has like an eye for like, she has like pieces of kit that she's specifically picked out. Like it has a, the, the I think one of the oldest like Cybex hack squats, and, which I absolutely love. So she kind of picks it, picks pieces out. So it's great being able to train there. And I've just been yeah plowing away uh, ever since. So it's not like I, I, I said this on my story today. I was like, I haven't missed a session since like Vegas and stuff. It's been like 30, 30 weeks, whatever. I was thinking... I never miss a session. <laughs> like it's not like it's a like a, a big deal. So I've just been playing away um ever since. And yeah, making sure that I'm fueling that with a surplus as well, gradually gaining. So I I can't complain at all, really, apart from yeah, I think it's it's kind of uh when I take an active recovery phase and like what I'm doing now, it's essentially like a double dip deload almost. Like it's not just one week, it's just two weeks of like barely training essentially. And it's, I see it a bit like creatine. Like I take creatine because the literature really supports creatine for not just like um, performance within the gym as an ergogenic aid and then the knock-on effects that'll have, but like the brain, like brain health benefits, like all these multiple benefits that keep coming out about creatine. It's not like I noticed the benefits though. I don't know about you, Kenny, but it's not like I take creatine. I'm like, oh, I know when I'm off my creatine, <laughs> like you just, you just don't notice. So kind of taking this active recovery phase not like there's like some obvious markers i'm like i must take it for this reason but it's like i like to take one basically every year this seems like a good time to take it and so it was a throw up between doing that or maybe doing like a mini cut and uh, right now i kind of want to use mini cuts more sparingly than i have in the past um, i think i threw them in a bit kind of like just overzealously and uh, whereas now i kind of know that they're, they're pretty fatiguing uh, in their own right and 
I think it's better to use them as like a bit of a last resort rather than like a, oh, I'm at this kind of crux. Maybe I'll just drop in a mini cut just because I can. It's like, well, I'm feeling good. My body comp's in a fine place. Appetite is good. I'm not stepping on stage anytime soon. So I don't need to like stay in a round stage weight too much. So after that, I'll probably mass again for like 15 weeks. So that's where I'm at. Nice. Nice. Yeah. There's a few things we can elaborate there. Let's start with WMBF uh, Worlds. You were competing... Uh, you came second. How was that experience? And then we'll dive into some of those things you were mentioning there about active recovery and mini cuts. Sure. I think that'll be a, a fun place to go as well. But let's talk about WMBF Worlds. So yeah, my uh, it was a bit of a crazy season, to be honest, because when you've had, and I don't know how your kind of competitive seasons and then off seasons have been, but when you've had a long off season and you go to like diet down and to compete again, you almost like lose touch with how your physique is gonna be like how improved is it like you know, i'm almost questioning myself am i going to be that much better than last time so what i wanted though was to beat my last time's performance and whilst you actually can't con- you can't control the outcome on stage like you just can't but i wanted to beat some of my performances so the best i'd had was like british finals coming fifth at the uk dfba that was like my best prop like performance overall which was a fine performance um and i again at that time like achieving that i was surprised and i was like that's great so I want. So I had a bit more of an expectation this time to do a bit better. And as the season went on, uh, I I actually came and won a UKDFBA qualifier. I'd never won a show before, um, but that was my only win of the entire season. And it maybe set me up for like a bit of a. I don't know. It kind of, I, I guess it set me up thinking, oh, maybe I can. Like it gave me kind of a confidence boost. But then the next shows, <laughs> I didn't win them. Um, I placed and I did fine, but it was kind of like, ah, oh, like it was a bit of a kick in the teeth after that. And it, you start doubting yourself, like, what am I going to do? So anyway, as um, the WMBF UK became a thing, uh, the, the WMBF used to be affiliated with the UK DFBA, they split apart. And then this opportunity came around where they were going to take, I think they said the top three from the qualifier to Las Vegas. And I was like, that. so that was like me set. I was like, I, I got to get a top three because that was my best opportunity. The UK DFBA, I think you'd have to win your category, get an opportunity to compete abroad and go to that next level. So I was like, right, the WMBF is where it's at. So I had like, pretty high confidence going in there that I'd be able to like manage a top three spot. Um, on that day, I didn't. I came fourth. So I was devastated. Like I was really, really gutted, uh, which is sad reflecting on it because uh, I think maybe even the next day or a couple of days after, Andrew Chappelle, who runs the WMBF with Steph Noble, he reached out to me. He was like, what would you say if I offered you a place in the like to go to WMBF and uh, finals and represent the UK. I was like, well, if you offered me one because you think I'm legitimately good enough, hell fucking yeah, because that was the ultimate goal. He was like, I think you're good enough. Uh, if you're willing to like come along, like come along. So that opportunity arose. So I was like, yeah, all guns like for Las Vegas. And I'm fortunate uh, in my situation in that. We don't have kids, uh, like me and my girlfriend, we don't have children, and I have no reason that I'd have to be here apart from for the dog. And luckily, my uh, mum actually said she'd kind of look after the dog for a week. So that was great. And then like, I work online and I, in some way, can pick and choose where I take holiday and things like this. And I don't take a lot of holiday as a, like an online coach. Uh, so like, I was, my clients also understand they want me to go and compete. They want to kind of see me do my best. So I managed to be able to go away, whereas the top three guys actually at the WMBF UK, none of them went to Las Vegas. So you think what talent we have here, and maybe even in other countries, like they're not going to the world finals, maybe because I don't know what their situation is like. 
COVID restrictions had only just been lifted. If you weren't vaccinated, you couldn't even go. So it was a bit of a strange one there. And then obviously, I don't know what people's careers had been like leading up into it. Maybe they were still struggling. Who knows? But I was in a position and a fortunate position where I could go and represent. So I did. And the reason I wanted to go to the WMBF Worlds as well, Kenny, and I'm sure you can relate to this, was because I just knew how many people would be there in terms of like Alberto Nunez was there, Joe Klimgueski was there. Um, I just saw so many kind of uh, faces that I'd seen online and we'd spoken, never met in person or met briefly before. I'd, I'd met Alberto when I was way underconfident and probably didn't really speak to him much. <laughs> and I was a bit yeah, af- yeah. afraid of him, kind of like, who is this guy? Uh, so yeah, it was just, it was unreal. And like people were coming up to me who recognized me, listened to the podcast. And I, I felt just so kind of humbled to, to, to be there and to have so many people come up to me who I, I didn't know who they were and kind of they listen to the podcast they've got value from it and they were just like uh, being it, it was super humbling just that whole experience so that won it for me like just to be kind of within the bodybuilding community and having people like like-minded individuals surrounding me and just being able to hang out with them for that period of time uh, and yeah that that was the, the main the, the best thing to be honest uh, there was a lot of obviously things behind the scenes in terms of I was trying to like match up my nutrition because there was, I think there's like an 11 hour time difference or something from the UK to Las Vegas. We traveled out like two days before the finals. So it was a sense of like trying to get my nutrition and chrononutrition and my sleep and remove jet lag and keep my physique looking its best, uh, which ultimately I think I overstressed, but that tends to be my kind of the way I go about bodybuilding is like I over kind of obsess about some of the details there and um, like trying to get, I remember I did have potatoes, which were a big part of my diet at that point, which you can kind of understand, but there's tons of potassium in potato. I thought bananas had a good amount of potassium. They don't compare to potatoes, <laughs> like really don't. So I was like buying lots of bananas at the, the store thinking, oh, that will kind of replace my potatoes because I had nowhere to cook. Silly, I think by the WMBF to get a hotel that doesn't allow like residents to have a microwave and like cooking facilities. They did their best to get like a microwave in their like area, um, like the, the athlete area. When you just, I don't know, hundreds of people there trying to use this thing, I didn't even want to try. So uh, I tried to like buy enough bananas. And I was like, man, I have to eat like 10 bananas to get the equivalent to one potato potassium. I'm not doing this. So right. yeah, anyway, fiddling around with all of that. But ultimately, I think the physique I brought to the world stage was one of the best for the season. I'm still unsure what I think the best look for me was across the season because I actually competed maybe between the, the last show and the first show, there was months of time between so it wasn't like a uh, and i i wasn't ready for the first show like i was stage ready but not like ultimately my best so i gave myself leeway but i still don't know what physique was best but um yeah like you said i think you said actually uh, i've been talking too long to, to remember yeah, no, it's good, it's uh, i came second so i came second at the WNBF uh, finals so i think it was in uh, weight categories uh, because yeah, for whatever reason, this season, the UK FBA and WMBF changed their categories to height categories. It didn't really change much for me because I'm either a mi- middle weight or I'm a middle height, just like your standard average guy, <laughs> So, which most people are going to land in. So I was a, a middle weight there and there was actually only, I think there was meant to be five of us on the day, but there was actually, in the end, there was only four of us, which actually was funny because they say, I think it was the top five have to do like a 30 second posing routine to music. Hmm. And I just used the same one minute routine throughout my entire season because oh. like, you know, Kenny, when, when you're competing, and you're dieting and you, like once you've got something, you don't really want to like, it's nice to like get multiple routines. But if you're not like that way inclined and 
kind of i'm not exactly a great dancer or anything like i, I can hit the standard poses but like coming out the box it's, it's a little bit challenging so i had to like come up with a 30 second routine to like a short clip of music like the night before uh so that was fun and then yeah i came second out of those um out of everyone there i was told it was close i don't know i look back and you know you always have your subjectivities you always have i don't know people close to you that tell you oh yeah you had it or whatever ultimately the the judges decided the guy um that won it won it um i actually can't remember his name i apologize but he's fantastic um like tiniest waist like he has everything that i don't have in spades so tiny waist really broad shoulders big chest bolder shoulders um and yeah he he brought it and he he looked fantastic so i was happy with second place obviously like who wouldn't be happy with that and to be able to represent the uk and bring back a trophy so that was really cool um and then i had like a week afterwards which was we could probably go into the recovery diet and stuff but it being in vegas and uh, i guess american food in general <laughs> like it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of it's a good time to be in a recovery diet i'll say that <laughs> oh absolutely i'm just, so so walk us through first thing is if there was someone who was going to be competing kind of in a similar situation like you, it doesn't have to be world, but competing abroad, what, um, what are some things that you would have maybe done differently? Like maybe from a mindset or stress standpoint, because you said that, um, yeah, you, you kind of get a little bit more, I, these aren't the exact words you said, but yeah. um, uh, maybe a little bit more stressed out, like when you're traveling for yeah. competition. Uh, and was that your first time doing that, uh, Steve? First time I've traveled for a comp, like flown for a competition for sure. Yeah. Ah, so what would you, is there anything you would do a little differently second time around just to kind of ease your emotions when you look back on it in hindsight? Yeah, I think the realization that the body, give my body more credit than it's kind of, than I did in terms of, I knew my sodium and potassium intake. And so in my head, I was like, I need to match that. And I need to be like pretty precise. The body's pretty good at sorting these things out. Like you, you don't have to overly obsess with that. Like if you didn't know your sodium potassium, it's unlikely unless you did something really wild that you're going to do something really wrong. Um, so I think I just ultimately try and like chill myself out about that because that was a good few hours where I was like trying to calculate things right. <laughs> and like do this, do this thing, and it's like that probably wasn't worth the stress. Uh, and then kind of traveling on show day, I mean. This is a small thing, but it's a hilarious mistake I made. I froze food to take kind of across and then on the flight and things like this. So I had all of that, which sounds like a really smart idea, apart from it didn't defrost. So I had frozen egg whites because uh, I think I wasn't sure if they'd let egg whites through because there's like a liquid thing. And if it's like a certain consistency, they don't let it through. I wasn't sure if they'd count egg whites as a solid or not, even if they were cooked. So anyway, I froze them which I, in hindsight was a terrible idea because I was then on the flight eating a frozen meal of egg whites and potato. And it How's was, that taste? Oh, wow. And this is so, coming from someone who's like, I don't know, shredded to the bone, been dieting for however many months. <laughs> like if I could have chosen not to eat that meal, I would have just not eaten that meal. Dang. Uh, so yeah, freezing that. I think in hindsight, not freezing any meals probably would have been the way to go actually in that <laughs> scenario. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, okay. Well, that's good. I mean, if for anyone listening, you know, there's some tips right there. No frozen egg whites. All right. <laughs> Even regular egg whites are kind of hard to put down. I'm like frozen. That's the next level. <laughs> oh, oh, I man. do egg whites. I can do egg whites in my off season. So I'm all right with egg whites. It's just okay. uh, frozen. Yeah. Frozen is, yeah, that was really awful. And I had potato as well. So I boiled potato and it was frozen. I was like, I have to eat this meal because <laughs> this is not the planned meal. And yeah. I felt like I was really sacrificing to win. 
Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, second is no, uh, you know, that's an accomplishment <laughs> still. So, I mean, it was, you could say it was worth it, right? <laughs> yeah, in some ways. I think for my mentality, it's the same with kind of obsessing about the ratio of sodium potassium. It's just the way I am. And in some ways, I need to satisfy those <laughs> things. Um, and I'm not satisfied without knowing the detail and knowing that it's been kind of okayed. Maybe in those scenarios, if I had like a coach by my side who would just tell me like, Steve, just do this, don't worry about it, who I com completely trusted, that would have removed that. Um, and I was consulting with Brett Freeman at the time who helped me a lot with kind of peaking and he was like my second eye, but he wasn't my formal coach. So I couldn't be like, and I wasn't using him to that level, but yeah, he, he helped me a lot. But I think next time, I think I would like to have a coach uh, to just take me through the process rather than yeah, me being an idiot and, and relying on myself the whole time, trying to. You know, sometimes it's just, yeah, like you said, it's like from a mental standpoint, just to take out the the second guessing of anything, like of any yeah. sort of behavior. It's I'm sure it's, as you know, you are a coach, so I'm sure clients can truly appreciate that part of it, right? Yeah, I think for, uh, I think it's underestimated how helpful that can be, uh, where the individual can just focus on being an athlete and what it does take, however, is complete trust in that individual. Because if I have clients who don't completely trust me, and I don't know if I can ever sense that, you can already tell there's like a barrier and they're not going to execute it as well as they should. But the ones who I see who just completely have my trust, um, it actually gives me a load of confidence uh, in the process. So it doesn't make me nervous or worried that maybe I won't do it right or whatever. It's just like, wow, I've got this individual who's just going to be robotic and I know they're going to execute the plan just as I've laid it out. Whereas where someone's like a bit, and here or there, I'm kind of like, are they actually doing what I've asked them to do? Like, I don't know then what decision to make afterwards because I actually don't know if I trust that they've executed exactly how I want it to. It doesn't happen a lot, but yeah, having that trust uh, is super important. Oh, right, right. Usually, those clients, you know, at least from my experience, those clients are oftentimes um, not getting the results that they otherwise could have. Like, that's just yeah. the, the truth, right? Um, so, I mean, that's a tip right there. If you hire a coach, like, you know, just go all in, right? Like, you, or else what are you doing with that? Why even bother, right? And especially, you should have done your due diligence, I hope, beforehand, so you know you do trust them. <laughs> like, yes. uh, don't follow the orders of someone who's just like telling you absolute garbage. But <laughs> hopefully, you haven't signed up to a coach that's doing that in the first place. Yeah, You've done right, your exactly. background research. <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. So let's um talk about um this active recovery. So I thought this would be interesting because you're at least from what I've gathered from obviously your podcasts um, sure. and of course uh, your Instagram, uh, you tend to uh, train. Now you could correct me if I'm wrong, but anywhere in the neighborhood of maybe five to six days per week. Is that, is that right? Uh, pretty accurate for the most part of the year. I mean, yeah, I can't remember the last time I didn't train six days a week. And okay. I don't know if you count AM and PM sessions, but for a long time I split my training into two. So you can even sales in like double figures at some points. <laughs> yeah. And, and so in that regard, I, I don't know if I should say you're an outlier in the natural bodybuilding world, but you definitely are doing some things that a lot of naturals either stay away from because they fear the uh, inability to recover from that much, or they are on the side of intensity so much so that they're pushing everything to failure that they can't even recover from that much. So sure. it really, it really boils down to that in terms of uh, the mindset as well, but, um, and, uh, what they can recover from because of how they're doing it, which was to be fair. And I mentioned this on a previous podcast. That's why that style, uh, of, uh, you know, I've tried the two days, uh, the, the AM and PM, I, I would take sure. my, uh, upper, my, I would do like an upper lower split, let's just say, and I would split the, the upper session in half. Cause you know, 
Yeah. I love upper, who doesn't like to train upper body, right? <laughs> That's just like, that was my also thing. I'm like, I just love to train upper body anyways. So, and uh, I just took my normal amount and I split it into two. So I got that part. That's Perfect. like a check mark. I didn't add like a whole bunch of extra volume or anything like that. Um, the mistake, or I wouldn't even call it a mistake. I think it's just my, just, it's embedded in me, maybe from a young age. My nickname was like, go hard, Kenny. Kenny loves to go hard. I would, you know, in high school, that's what they would call me. I would always be doing extra, extra, extra. And I think like, it's almost hard to take off that uh, inability to pull back on your sets. Like, you know, let's be real. If you're in this, you've experienced that version of training at some point or at one point or another yeah. where you're, you're going hard, like to failure and force reps and negatives and all that stuff. Uh, and I'm sure, and you can answer this, Steve, uh, have you experienced that as well at some point throughout your training career? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's hard to say in some ways, because at least at the time I thought I was training to failure, mm. but I, and um, the more I think about it, I, I do think there's a level of like skill acquisition to properly like it's hard to say properly training to failure but i think i failed but not because my muscles necessarily were absolutely failing but mm -hmm. it was like i don't know technique just broke down or because i wasn't performing it properly or i didn't have my breathing right or whatever i just didn't have the skill capacity to properly challenge my muscles to to complete and utter failure but definitely like that's how i would train that's what i did every single session was can i do more weight than last time and it'll be a case of the only way I know is if I go all the way to the point of which I can't do anymore. And then I would, I've had injuries. I've like, I would regress and yeah, the cycle, I, that's essentially where I was. And I was spinning my wheels and not seeing progress. Cause I was just like, that had worked. And then it's like, well, you don't adapt that quickly anymore. You have to be a bit more clever with things. And I had no idea about deloads, even when I did five, three, one. Uh, and that was when Matt Ogus was quite big and he was doing five, three, one. And I, I copied Matt yes. Ogus cause who wouldn't, he was incredible shape. And right. uh, in hindsight, obviously, like you realize that maybe that copying the person who's in the, like, the shape <laughs> yeah. you want to be in isn't the best route. But even 531, it would have like that would have sub maximal work built into it. I wouldn't do it. I just trained. I was like, this is way too easy. I'm going like, I've got way more in the tank. Why mm. would I hold back? I just didn't understand why you would ever do that. Whereas now I think there's way more education about that. So, yeah, certainly have been through those kind of periods of time where it's like, like you said, like, like do or die, go hard or go home. I actually had a t-shirt that had right. go hard or go home on the back. Right. The blood and guts, the, you know, go, go hard or go home. Like you just said it. So I, you know, that's why I wanted to, this is interesting because, okay. If you don't know how to modulate or not even know, if you're not willing to, that's probably a better way to put it as well. For the people who do know the people who have gone there and have gone to that point in, in a set and have taken that for extended periods of time where they've trained that practice, the skill of that. And, um, to be fair, it's much easier to gauge with lower reps and much heavier loads than higher reps with much less load. I think we, we can both agree to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, but if you don't know, if you're not willing to back off on your intensity, like stay away from, you know, all out failure, then that, that training six days per week, AM, PM, that's not going to work at all. And, uh, and that's, um, uh, yeah, that's kind of why I ran into some trouble with that. Cause I was, I thought I was backing off, but I, I don't think I was when I look back, it's like, dude, when I look back at some of the footage, I'm like, there's four grinder reps right there where you're like, <laughs> like, you can't even move the thing. And then you're doing some cheat and it's like, okay, like that's just too much. Right. So, um, where I'm getting at with this and the question I have is what are some ways and, um, 
or what is in your experience, what's your experience with the, cause you've been doing that for, consistently for quite a while, like, and, and it seems to be working really well for you. So if someone was thinking about it, like, Hey, do I need this? Where might it apply for someone? And how, what do they need to really, um, prior, uh, adjust in terms of those variables sure. to make it appropriate for the most part. And I know it, you know, it's going to be generalized guidelines, but I think aside from what I just mentioned, maybe you can elaborate. Sure. So yeah, I would say two-a-day training, first of all, I wouldn't say anyone needs it. I, I'm not mm. sure actually many top competitors use it, um, okay. but I think it is somewhat related to that potentially like go hard or go home. Uh, I think it's also a bit of a newer concept, kind of like reps in reserve. It, it's just a newer kind of, people might've done something like that in the past. Like I know people have quoted Jay Cutler saying he's never taken a set to failure or something along those lines. Like he just, he, that's not how he trained. And so maybe they applied it in the past, but there was no name for it. I think maybe in the golden era, they did AM and PM maybe. Like I think I, I remember someone saying Arnold would train like twice a day or whatever. He was a big on volume or whatever. Yes. So I think um, the reason maybe we don't see it so much is people aren't kind of there and at it. And it's the same with why maybe you don't get many at the top now doing six days a week. I don't even, I don't know necessarily what they're doing, but maybe they're not doing it because of what they're currently practicing doesn't allow for it. But maybe in 10 years time, we'll see more and more people adopting these strategies because like, as you learn how to do things potentially better, and I think there are potential benefits to doing it. Obviously, I wouldn't be doing it otherwise. They get more and more common practice. It's kind of like when flexible dieting first came out and people were talking about if it fits your macros, whatever. I think there wasn't that many people doing it. Uh, and slowly people learn, oh, that's what it means. It's kind of like, oh, it, like the science makes sense. It's got principles. And that sort of thing. And now it's like common practice. Like you'll get mm. IFBB pros like doing flexible dieting. I don't think you would have got that a decade ago. So I think some of these things, maybe you're not seeing it as much because it's just we're learning all the time about what's driving hypertrophy. How do we best kind of set up our programming to allow for that? So I, I would still say no one needs it necessarily, but it can be beneficial for a select number of people. So one could be just that person that has a preference for it. So they like training multiple times a day and it fits their lifestyle. Maybe they're a PT and they're in the gym anyway. So it's like, maybe it's a case of they have an hour break and that's not quite enough time to really, and they have to rush their session a little bit. And so by splitting up, maybe their upper body session, they can do their back and chest. And then later they can do their arms and delts. Awesome. Like for that person, it suits their lifestyle, it suits their preferences. Um, for someone where it's not like a preference-based thing and it's not a... I guess, lifestyle-based thing. It's more of a, do I actually need this? Will I actually benefit from this? They certainly want to be already training like five or six times a week, I think, because mm. I see tour days as like a component of frequency. because so that's essentially what we're doing. We're just spreading out volume and it's more of an advanced tool. So when you're an advanced lifter, it's whether or not you need more volume. You're probably at the higher end of the volume you would have needed in your training career, but also that volume is more fatiguing for you because you're stronger, things like this. So it tends to make sense to split it up more. When you're a novice, three full body sessions, hey, you're going to be growing. But as you get more and more advanced, you want to start splitting it to like upper lower four times a week. And then maybe you go push pull legs, upper lower five times a week. And then maybe you can get to like a push pull legs, push pull legs, or however you want to split up your volume, kind of splits a kind of here or there, I, I kind of think about training that muscle enough within a session to stimulate growth and then training it again once it's recovered rather than necessarily a split. But these are splits people know of and they, they work very well fundamentally. So I don't think you really want to come to like, if you're doing three full body sessions a day, 
rather than going to like AM and PM, go to like four days. Like you'll get more recovery from a full night's sleep than you will from like three hours and a meal. <laughs> so you're right. going to get better training if you can split it up that way. There might be some people that are training four days a week and they just can't. Again, that's more lifestyle preference based. So if I just consider someone as like who can train as many days as you ever could want on paper, like they're just this perfect person. It's a case of during your upper body session, and you can probably talk to this, Kenny, like if you're doing chest, you're doing back, you're doing delts, you're doing triceps, biceps, like everything, like it adds up by the end of the session, how much due diligence are you giving to whatever's last? Maybe not that much. And maybe it could grow better if you separated your session and you could have a meal, you could chill out a little bit, come back in. And now it's like, wow, like that's, you're probably going to get much higher quality of volume. So I wouldn't look in, like you said, like you just took your current volume, you split it into great. You'll get the individuals who will be like, okay, cool. I'm going to do upper in the morning, lower in the evening. And I'm going to do that every day. It's like, no, you'll run into a wall very, very quickly. You kind of want to take the current volume you're doing, and just split it up. You might find your, you can tolerate a little bit more volume, or you might find actually the quality is so high that kind of the stimulus you're getting from that volume is absolutely fine. And you can kind of do that. So it definitely generally wants to come from a need versus a want. And some things people want to avoid doing is, well, nutrient timing becomes more important in this scenario. It's become, I would say, in the evidence-based space, fairly well known that we don't have to be obsessive about whacking down a protein shake and like dextrose post-workout because insulin and the post-workout window is more of a barn door. Maybe you want to get a meal in within an hour post-workout, but it doesn't have to be like high GI carbohydrates and whey protein. It can be like a mixed meal if you want it to, because you're not training later in the day. You're training like the next day and it's probably a different muscle group anyway. So we don't have to worry so much. But if you train chest in the morning, you've got triceps in the evening, your triceps are trained during chest. They're a bit fatigued. If you actually want to get the most from your triceps now, you do want to recover as soon as possible. So you do want a faster digesting meal to replenish glycogen to come in as well fueled as possible so those details because if you're going to do it why not do it right kind of make sure your nutrient timing set up correctly and it doesn't have to be like a span of three to four hours whatever it could be eight hours it could be four hours within the same day even if you took half an hour within a session say you have two hours to train but your session only would take an hour and a half or something take half an hour in the middle of your session have an intra workout shake during your session Mm. hydrate chill out a little bit. You could come and finish the PM stuff. I've done that before when I can't get back into the gym later. And I'm like, I still want to get some of the benefits of the PM training and I have time now. So I'll do that sometimes even. Um, And then the other thing you want to avoid in terms of training, generally, you don't want to train anything in the kind of the AM or the first portion of the session that's going to impact the later session. So in the example I use with chest and triceps, if you train your triceps in the morning and then you go to train chest later, your triceps are probably going to be the limiting factor in all your chest work. So you're not going to get a good chest workout. Whereas the other way around, sure, your triceps are going to get a bit tired during chest training, but you've hit your chest really well, a little bit of triceps. And then in the evening, you now isolate the triceps so they get a great workout. So you also wouldn't want to do something like leg curls or like leg extensions in the morning and then come back and do your like compound leg work because it's like you've just damaged or even the other way around. If you've trained a muscle group, you kind of want to finish training in that muscle group there and then, and then let it start kind of recovering, adapting. You don't want to kind of do like half your chest work in the morning and half in the evening. I, I don't think that's probably the best way to set things up. We don't have tons of literature on this, by the way. I, I know um, Eric Helms just released a podcast, I think, with... Um, Omar, on, yeah, I saw that. On iron culture, yes. yes. So I haven't I listened that. to it all, but the evidence that we have seems to be kind of 
there's not much, especially specifically for bodybuilding. And I know those guys are like, it's not a game changer of a thing to do. You definitely don't have to do it. But there could be some scenarios where there's some promising like lines of evidence that is showing benefit. And I think theoretically, you can think about it and be like, I could see how that could benefit things. Well, this is what I'm saying, because, you know, part of you doesn't want to believe it because you're like, man, I got to be in the gym. So (laughs) this is the thing, right? Like at the beginning, it could be quite exciting. Like I'm pretty I can say this with confidence that I tapped in like to those almost like newbie gains. Like it was weird. It was like I've been training for 10 years and then I do this thing where I just split because I was handling loads in the second half of my workout that I otherwise wouldn't be doing. Yeah. If it was all combined, like for that upper body example, like, cause that's how I was doing it where, okay, you do your, you know, two push two pull kind of thing. There's your chest and back. And then it's like, okay, instead of now tacking, uh, ta- uh, put, you know, doing arms and delts at the end of a typical upper body day is kind of like how I would do it and how most natural bodybuilders, like how they would mostly structure things if they're doing a upper lower hitting everything twice per week. Right. I think we can both yeah. agree to that. That's typically how it would be run for the most part, unless there's some weird specialization cycles going on. But um, nonetheless, it's like I was I was using loads that I otherwise wasn't using. I was fresh. I was recovered. And um, I was like, man, I, I don't you know, I'm like talking to my girl. I'm like, now, fine. It's biased. Right. She's going to say, yeah, you're getting bigger. Like, so give you the thought. <laughs> yeah. like, you know, but I really did. I was like, man, this is crazy. And then the mistake is so this is what we can dive in more deeper is um, how long. Well, proximity to failure, that's number one, is very important to know how to gauge that. And, you know, you have people that stay really far away from it, think they're hitting failure. And then you have the other crowd that's just there. This is kind of where, you know, I believe I fall in where it's like, you think you're not hitting it, but you're actually doing a whole bunch of grinders when you should have stopped maybe before. Um, And, um, you know, there's probably less people in that crowd than this crowd. And I don't, it's not that I'm prioritizing myself on that. It's just because um, it's just the nature of my, just the nature of how I am and how I train. And I, and then I question myself. And if you're questioning yourself, you're probably on that side, meaning the side where you're probably pushing too hard. If you're the guy who's like, yeah, I hit it. You're probably maybe not hitting it. That's my opinion. eh? Cause I'm like, from a philosophy standpoint and logical standpoint, I think, you, you know, that makes sense to me and my brain and how it works. Cause, um, if I was going to, you know, send you a clip, you'd probably be like, yeah, dude, you should have, you know, that's, you're kind of going too far with that. You're shaking and you're trembling in the seat on the leg press. Like, bro, why are you going that hard? Right. If you're trying to gauge this. So anyways, I, I'm rambling, I'm rambling now, but yeah, let's talk about proximity to failure. Why, if you're doing, if you're going to try this thing where it's like, let's spread out the volume and, uh, you know, to make it a little bit more, um, appropriate based on some of the things you mentioned with where, when it's going to be a viable option. Um, how do you, how can you better gauge that so that you can make this thing a little bit more successful and you don't run into a wall after whether it be a few weeks, a few months, even if you are deloading, I mean, even a psychological wall, like fatigue, because you're just so fatigued, which is kind of what happened to me. So let's, let's break that down. Yeah. I think, um, proximity to failure is, is an interesting one. Absolutely. Cause I think it's like you mentioned, like when we look at the studies, people who are pretty advanced have good understanding of how to gauge it fairly well. And I think experience is amazing for that. Like the more times you use it, the better you get used to using a tool, like any tool in life. Um, higher reps is still more challenging. Um, but again, like if you now and then take everything to the house, like to maybe like failure, or you take it to that rep where it's like you said, you're completely grinding 
if you tried to do another rep either you would fail or like it just would look not pretty at all right like you get that experience uh and it it can definitely be challenging and this is actually part of the reason why i no longer split up my leg training i used to do quads in the morning hamstrings in the evening vice versa uh but i find after i've done like whatever main muscle group that is for the day i don't want to go back to the gym later like i'm just that fatigued um, because leg training now in my kind of career is so fatiguing that I, I can't, I can't do that. So I think there are cases where you could do so much like set volume, so many sets to failure, where if you tried to consistently then come back in the evening and do more, you're just going to be too, too fatigued centrally. So it's just not going to work well for you. Whereas you need to have like a, a system that is logical in terms of progression and how you're working through things. So the way I like to set it up is my week one of a mesocycle is generally meeting minimum thresholds for hypertrophy. So I like to know, okay, I've met the minimum threshold for set volume for growth. There are thereabouts. I don't know exactly like it's this many sets, like it's there or thereabouts. I'm pretty certain I'm meeting that minimum threshold. Same for relative intensity. So then I know if I've met the minimums and like I'm in that scenario, getting a pretty decent trade-off of stimulus to fatigue. Fatigue's pretty low because I'm not training like balls out and I'm not training with many sets. But the stimulus also isn't super high either. And then as I go through my mesocycle, I kind of ramp up stimulus. With that, inevitably comes fatigue as I approach closer to failure. I train with potentially more uh, training volume as well. And then I get to the point where I am in that final week, which I just did last week, where I will be training like at my highest volumes, everything taken to like, basically, I can't go anymore. So no RAR, there or thereabouts. And yeah, that's unsustainable training once you're at that point. So I have to then come back and deload or I'm in an active recovery week this week. Whereas, so for the individual who's trying to train at maximum kind of set volume with maximum relative intensities and like that is not a sustainable way of training because they will just burn out uh, immediately. Mm. If you're training at like maximum relative intensities, you probably need to come down with your volume and vice versa. Like you can get away with more volume if you train more time with kind of leaving reps in reserve. And the proximity thing, so... Let's take a, an example when the rep starts, when the rep speed starts. So let's take anything um, sub 10 reps, because I think as you get above 10 reps, it can start to get a little bit trickier to gauge. But if we're talking about sub 10, because sometimes you're doing a set of, I don't know, dumbbell, flat dumbbell press. And, it, it, you know, all of a sudden you just hit a wall and you just you literally can't. Right. Um, with heavy with the you know heavier loads, even if we're talking yeah anywhere between five and 10, if it's a true five and 10 rep. Uh, max for that day in that given scenario. Um, would you agree with that, by the way? Yeah, that I think it's hard, that it's easier to gauge. And sometimes with rep speed, it, it's like it kind of you kind of just hit a wall, and it's like unless someone's literally there, you're just you're done because you can't get it out the bottom. Yeah, it's for me, um, it's individual a little bit. Mm. So, like everything is uh, to some extent. Like I will have some clients, typically guys with massive quads, and they will like hit that wall. Like I'll be looking at them and I'm like, cool, they've got four left. Then they do a rep and I'm like, they stopped because they're just completely gone. And they have huge quads, very evident. They're probably fast switch dominant, so they can't grind. Whereas mm -hmm. for myself, I tend to, you tend to see like, okay, three reps in reserve, it grinded that much. Two, it's a bit slower. One, it's a little bit slower. And then I hit like a really grindy rep where you're like, I'm not sure you'd even make that. Mm. I don't have those huge quads and I probably am a little bit more slow twitch dominant. Um, and I, I don't know if you've had this, but I've in particularly in females, they, like I watched, uh, had a female years ago and she would squat. And I was like, 
she's legit at one like RAR, and then she get like five more reps. And I'm just like, what? What is going on? Like, is she making this up? And it's like, no, she just. So I think that's where experience comes in. On average, though, I think you're right in terms of you see this like slight slowdown in reps, and then it's like an abrupt like there's just nothing left here. Whereas higher reps. And often you do higher reps, not with like a back squat. So it's a bit less yeah. risky. So like a leg press, you can kind of grind those a bit more or a leg extension particularly. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think it could be um, exercise specific uh, relative to the resistance. Like, you know, if it's a dumbbell press where it's like heaviest at the bottom kind of thing, sure. or if it's a machine where there's some sort of a manipulation of the resistance, it could be much different experience of where you fail and whether or not you're getting, you can tap into those grinders with the slower rep speed cadence. Um, and it kind of have that drop off if again, but I think it's also like you mentioned body part specific as well and individual of course specific. So it, it does, it is a tricky one, right? <laughs> Yeah, you actually brought up a really good point. Uh, I, I think people, they, they just think our oh, RAR as reps slow down, like reps just slow down and then to the grinding halt. And like uh, this, like you said, there's lots of different factors. And one of them is even like, how is the mechanics of that exercise in terms of like strength profile to resistance profile? I know this, like an example I would use is I notice it for myself and doing a dumbbell bent of a row. Like it's much harder at the top. And so like, I'm like not, and you don't have a chest support. There's no way you're gr really grinding reps of that sort of lift. Whereas yes. I also have a strive chest supported row so I can change the resistance. So it's variable. So I can make it easier where it's hardest and make it harder where I'm strongest. And so I can get into a position where my last reps are like grinding because it's dropping off where I'm fatiguing. So it can look very different. And then that's where it becomes tricky to gauge proximity to fit. Like you have to have like a, like almost like an individual box for each exercise to know, okay, on this one, I probably won't be slowing down before I tap into that final rep. Let me just gauge that differently versus this exercise where I know if I slowing down, maybe I'm three or four away from failure. Okay. On my first week, I can go to that one rep where it slows down and then maybe I cut it off or something like of that nature yeah. where there's a little bit more specificity with regards to proximity to failure, because I feel like that's not been, uh, at least from what I've uh, encountered on what's being put out there in, um, you know, maybe I just haven't come across it yet, but it's not talked about as much. Would you, sure. would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's a very nuanced discussion where if people have applied it, they'd be hearing this and they'd be like, oh yeah, that, that sounds like something. Whereas for people who have never applied it, they'd be like completely lost. They'd be like, oh, you're jumping into too much detail about this thing. Uh, uh, right, but, right. but definitely, and this is where that experience comes in. Like we talked about before, if you have those weeks where you've left everything out on the, the floor, like if the week before, like if you were knowing like next week, I'm going to go to the house. And if you've added like four reps from the week before, you're like, man, I was leaving way too much in the tank. Whereas if you get one more rep than the week before, you're like, oh, spot on. And then you have all this data from that week prior to deloading where you can be like, oh, I could reduce the load by maybe roughly five to 10% or take off three, two to three reps. I'll be right back to like a good starting point for a meso. And then I look to progress things by a rep or a, a small amount of load again and see how many weeks I can accumulate kind of this effective uh, training volume again. Right, right. Well, do you think that you're, so you're in a quite a unique scenario, Steve, where you have like the job set up, you have the gym pretty close by from what we've spoken about. Um, you can recover really well from that. Like for me, I was only tapping into that with quarantine life, right? Where it's like, okay, sure. I have this little setup in my living room. So it's like, why not take advantage of that style sure. and see how it works? Which again, 
I've I experienced some positive and then some negative because of other variables that I think came into play. And I think it's good to bring this up exercise selection. Like I wasn't changing anything for like six months because of all the options I had. It's like, we want to make this thing, a, you know, I want to be building muscle. I don't want to be doing some weird bandy thing when I have dumbbells here. It's like, guess what? And I don't even have an adjustable bench. So flat bench is staying in for as long as I can milk it. Right. And then you start to run into some or dips for like as long as I can milk it. And then you run into some overuse type stuff that, so is it the two days? Is it the overuse? Is it the, cause if you're doing everything else relatively well, maybe the proximity to failure could have been better Then maybe there's some other moving. Like this is the thing people always think it, no, this was the problem. It's like, there's so many variables, right? Yeah. No. Yeah. It's, it's complete. You're completely right. Um, even when I think about uh, just in, as an example, I guess, like people could look at my 2017 to 2021 uh, prep and I'd, I'd gain 10 pounds of stage weight and they could look at me and be like, that's because you introduced it two a days. It's like, <laughs> yeah, but I also got better at so many other things. And like, I don't know, there, there's so many variables it could have been like you just, or someone else, like they just pick their bias, right? They'd be like, oh, it's because you pushed your body weight to over 200 pounds, the heaviest you've ever been. I was like, yeah, it could have been that. It's probably a combination of a, a bunch of things, you know. Uh, it's hard to isolate it unless you have like everything in a vacuum and it's this one precise thing. For sure, for sure. So let you know, let's talk about this because I think it'll for the body, the natural bodybuilder, or maybe there's bodybuilders in general listening to this who are maybe on the you know the on the enhanced side to be open and fair to everybody who might be listening, right? But let's just say that they're not they don't have that setup that you have where you can do that and thrive on it if you're controlling all those other variables um, as best as you possibly can. Do you think that there's a place, well, because this, well, I actually want your opinion, where training one to two RIR consistently, like you're not doing the from four to zero, um, from low sets to high set, like kind of that progressive model that you've taken and have done well with. Do you think that there's a place where this way will just thrive better for someone based on just lifestyle factors and, and psychological and maybe the way they like to train and, but it still be appropriate. Like it's not only just muscle building, but still appropriate for just long-term progress where they won't start running into issues because they're training so close to failure. Cause I know you have a very, um, you know, I've, I've listened to a lot of podcasts with you and Mike Isbertel talk about these types of things, but I would love to see where you're currently at with that. So I definitely think um, when I think about it's kind of similar to if it fix your macros and flexible dieting and you get just to use a like analogy that everyone will get, you get the guys that are on the meal plans, you get the guys who are doing like extreme if it fits your macros or something. And it's like both of these can work. They probably can learn from one another to make them slightly better because you get the structure from the meal plan or whatever, but you get the flexibility and the education of macros. So you can kind of find a middle ground. And you get people like Alberto Nunez at the top of his game doing like, and like the whole team 3DMJ. And you see some of the things they eat maybe in their contest prep and like some, like, I don't know, some bros, let's just say, will look at it and be like, oh, there's no way you're getting shredded eating that or whatever. It's like, well, no, the principles suggest that I, I will. And maybe that's, Maybe for one individual, they can't go down that route because it's too palatable and it'll fire off them to overeat and blah, blah, blah. Whereas for someone else, it's like Alberto, it's like it actually allows him to adhere better because he has some freedom to be able to eat kind of um, like the foods that he loves and it doesn't set off his appetite, whatever. It's the same with kind of training. We have some principles that we know we need to meet to grow. And then there's many, many different kind of roads to Rome, as it were. So you could, in terms of like proximity to failure, so long as you're training hard enough, 
like you're going to, and then you've got enough a sufficient amount of training volume, you're going to grow. Like the muscle will have to grow. So if you're meeting, it doesn't, you don't have to start a minimum thresholds. You probably don't want to start a maximum because you're probably not going to be able to sustain that very long to be able to grow very well. But if you start somewhere like essentially what you talked about there is more in the middle ground, not at your maximum, not your minimum, but more in this middle ground zone. And then can we milk that out for a longer period of time and see growth? I, I definitely think you would see growth through that. Um, do I think there are some complications to that approach as well? For sure. I think maintaining the same RER is challenging week to week because then mm. you're always, always thinking about it and you're like, am I at one or two? Like, I don't know. Maybe because you're so close, you know, like more or less, like I, I from experience, I know how close I am. Um, and maybe in that scenario that you've mentioned, like for some people, their psychology, it suits them better. Maybe I try and talk to them and see if I could talk them around to like the way I like to do things. Maybe I could be like, I think you might get slightly better results through doing this, this, this. Maybe I could bring them around and get them to trial it. Maybe they'd fall in love with that method. Who knows? But ultimately, to your question, absolutely, someone could see great results following that method. And could it be the best results for them? Possibly. I don't think we have enough data to say like the way I'm doing it is absolutely the way you should do it. I've just found a, an approach that works really well. It ticks the boxes in terms of principles and... Uh, yeah, it's, it's like I said, it's been working. So it's a case of for that individual, they can tick the boxes, do, checking all the principles. Are they getting the results they would expect and they're enjoying it? I'd say have at it and keep going. Could there be improvements to my method and that method? Sure. Um, but you'd have to kind of talk through it and see if it's worth changing from something that is working and you enjoy. Right, right. Well, and I also think to touch on this, because I think it's important like the proximity to failure thing, I find, I don't know about you, Steve, but like, sometimes I think like, as if it's like the last workout I'm ever going to have on the planet or something where it's like, okay, if I didn't nail it, or if I didn't get it as close as I thought, maybe with, let's just say I was going to try that method where it's like four RIR to, to zero progressively yep. throughout the weeks. It's like, just cause you, you eventually know if you were there or not. And, and if not, then you learn from it. Like it's, you, it's not the end of all your gains. If you didn't get it on that first week or the second, you, you learn along the way and you make it. And I think that's um, another thing I think that should be mentioned. It's like, you know, don't put so much pressure on yourself to, you know, get it to that. And I think that's why the failure thing works uh, for a lot of people as well. Cause um, if it just stops moving, then it's Fail like, it could be. They could be satisfied with that mentally for whatever reason as well, because I think that's also just as arbitrary to some extent um, uh, as far as a landmark, I mean, right? Because we've just been told that you have to go there in order to milk every possible mm -hmm. bit of growth that is potentially available. I, I yeah. think that's fair to say. It's a yeah, it's, it's it's funny, yeah, because that, that crowd, I'll say, have the mentality of, like they need to get everything out of that training session. If their like chest isn't trembling by the end of the session, they're not destroyed and mega sore the next day. They haven't done everything they could have. And it's a really short-sighted approach to training. Like, we don't take that approach with dieting. We're not like trying to lose as much body fat every single day as possible because that would lead to like muscle loss and risks down the line. Like you want to lose in a sustainable way that's going to maximize the long-term result. Challenging for people to take that mindset towards bodybuilding. There's almost a kind of medal type of mentality where it's like, I don't know, like they, they it's the ego. It's the ego of I've given yes. it my all this session and I haven't left anything there, but it's like, well, could we do enough today to then allow you not to just kind of do enough today, but also allow you to overload in future and get more from your next training session. 
like have that foresight and then by like a month's time you'll be up here versus like down here because you've just been burning yourself out too much it's like we can take mm. steps up allow your body to adapt recover and that sort of thing so yeah it's it's a hard one because especially when you talked about like the enhanced side and and like like you nothing against that side but you can do things that we can't yes <laughs> so uh, you can recover much faster than we can if you have a bunch of stuff helping you so it, it's a bit trickier for us you know what? And even then it's like, um, what was it? The Mike Menser stuff where a bunch of naturals are trying that, met, that, that kind of a way. <laughs> yeah. It's like, even he had problems with that approach. Like he stopped training. Like he just like completely fell off. Like, and I'm not, I'm not saying it was because of that system or whatnot, but it's like, it could take a toll. If you're not careful, that stuff can really just burn you out, not just physically, but psychologically, if you're not careful. And I think that is 100% fair to say. Yeah. I, uh, I actually can't imagine it in terms of like trying to every week, beat the logbook and you've essentially taken it to failure from week yeah. one because i get anxiety just like going in like week one trying to achieve like a hack squat like three to four rr that is fucking hard yes. and i'm like can i it's a little bit heavier than last meso can i get it for that number of rr and then like by the time i like last week i was doing hack squats it's like i go for that rep where it's like this is the rep that means i've progressed from last meso like i've got two and a half or it's five kilos more than last meso cycle same reps in reserve do I get this rep? And it's like the anxiety before going into that set. And I have to like calm myself down, really screw my head on. It's just not for advanced individuals who have been training many years to progress on a week to week basis. You'd be fucking the strongest person in the world right. <laughs> within like right. a matter of months if you're able to do that. So we're more right. looking at like monthly, bi-monthly progress for some people like Jeff Alberts. And I'm going to actually be interviewing him on my podcast soon. So like, oh, nice. how often does Jeff see a PR? How right. like, when was the last PR he saw? I'm not even mm. sure. So how like what does he do to progress? Because there's got to be other things he's doing. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. That's all for part one. Be sure to stay tuned. Next week we're going to release part two with Steve Hall from Revive Stronger. Also, be sure to check out our YouTube channel at Longevity Muscle. The link is in the description box below. We release videos daily, so be sure to subscribe. Support the podcast, share the episode if you enjoyed it, and until next time.